Are you the quantum mechanics? Yes, we are the quantum mechanics with a paranormal podcast for the believers, the doubters and everyone in between. Um, and uh, I want to start off this episode, Ben, with a big thank you to you. Because uh, I was supposed to put together an episode for this week, but I've been kind of stuck on another project and pulling my hair out and text uh, I texted Ben last minute and said I know I was supposed to be doing an episode but I don't think I can do it this week what should we do should we just not do one this week and Ben kindly stepped up to the plate and has put something together so uh, a big thank you from me on that one. Oh well, no not at all like um, it's funny how sometimes this show produces itself because um I, I'm more of an electronic um, music person, but this week we lost Meatloaf and I was a bit I was a bit sad about Meatloaf. Yeah, I was too. I'm not a big f- like fan of the music particularly, but I like really liked him as an actor and there was just little bits yes. of, of his personality. And Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, I feel sad that I'll never meet him. I know people, as I'm sure you do in the industry, who met him and... Apparently, he was just such a wonderful, lovely man and brought a lot to everything that he did. So it's almost like I'm sad about the loss of him as a human and his creativity. And I also thought, you know, he's one of those people a bit like, um, I don't know, a bit like a George Michael who spans up and down. Your gran would be sorry that he wasn't there and one of your mates will be sorry. And, you know, he, he appealed to all people. But um, so, you know, we'll, I guess I will tacitly dedicate this episode to Meatloaf because he gave me the idea for this. And we know that there are pop stars and music stars, I won't just say pop, music stars who have had encounters with different entities. We ourselves spoke to Misha Paris, but I was really keen on those who had come across UFOs. And I thought, oh, let me go and find a really unknown UFO case which involves some pop stars. And I did, and it's absolutely fascinating. So that's what I'm going to tell you about today. Oh, I'm really excited about this. Again, because I've just been so head down in other stuff, no idea what we were going to talk about today. But yeah, that sounds fantastic. So this all takes place in a region of France called Draguignon. I'm going to call it Draguignon. I have done... You know how you could go on YouTube and you can check how to pronounce these things. I've done it, but my, you know, my um, my French accent is appalling. Draguignon, <laughs> I think, is how you say it. Draguignon. And if you want to imagine, Do, I always find with French, if you if, if French words, if you say them quickly, you can kind of get away with. Yeah, them. <laughs> that's right. Well, like they do. So I'm sure sometimes they don't know how to pronounce them slowly. <laughs> uh, but Draguignon is in the part of France that used to be called Provence. I think Provence now has a longer name that includes the Alps and Côte d'Azur and all that. But it's down in that part. It's down in the warm part of France. Mm. And it involves two members of a band called Tangerine. Now, it isn't the Tangerine you're thinking of. I know oh, that. Right. There's the, not a dream at the end. No, this is, a, this is a French. They are described as rock folk dance, and they existed between 1972 and 1981. So okay. what I'm imagining dance is, and this is important in the story, dance is not like... Um, 
dropping a couple of disco biscuits and dancing around in a field in Hampshire. I think this is more like your sort of steel eye span kind of all around my hat type of dance. Thing. right right um yep. and, and i've included um well <laughs> i should have sent it to you first i've included a picture of them um i'll send it to you later for your delectation but if you can imagine they've all this is from one of their first album covers um they are sitting around a rock in a forest the lead singer is wearing a top hat his co-lead singer she's wearing a long flowery dress Everybody has more hair than you, than you can possibly mention. And their trousers are so wide, they would fill a motorway. They, they, look, they look full on prog rock to me. <laughs> oh, have you seen a picture of them? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, I... they do describe themselves as, um, as prog rock. But this, this incident happens in the spring of 1971. And... Uh, there are two witnesses from the band, and I will go on to tell you who they are. But what you need to know is that they are on their way to um, a practice in a uh, a house that they've rented well away from anywhere so they can make as much noise as they like. And it does mention um, in the news reports that, you know, one of the reasons they take in this place is because they are a dance band, not that we know it, but a dance band in their time, they wanted to stomp around and make a bit of noise because they're practicing for a show. You've got to have a little bit of space for that 15-minute drum solo. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And the main report of this comes out of the Flying Saucer Review um, from 1973. And pretty much I've, I've scoured around and it looks like every other report that is um, talking about this is based on the the very same article and it was um, translated from French. So there aren't really any other English language accounts which differ from what we find in the Flying Saucer Review, which itself is a credible source. But the, yep. the two people, who two members of the band who take part in this sighting, and uh, again, I'm testing my French because they are French, Pierre Calafat and André Bouchard. I'm pretty sure that's how you say it. Sounds Pierre Calafat, André Bouchard. Actually, Ben, could you just say them a bit quicker? Pierre <laughs> Calafat, André Bouchard. Yeah, there you go. In, Perfect. We, we, I can cope with the Pierre and André. We'll we'll keep we'll keep we'll keep with that. Yeah. Uh, unless and some of my notes, I've realised stupidly, I've referred to them by their surnames. What an idiot! Anyway, they're they're both in their young twenties. And it's the 29th of March and it's the evening and they're on their way to meet the other members of the band who were already at the property. And it's described as being in the middle of the countryside, no other houses around it. And the house itself that they have rented is right at the end of a quiet road. So it's it's in itself really remote. And in the Flying Saucer Review, they point out because they've done a chat with these two people. They talk about how important it was that they had to get away because they they describe um, the volume of their music and the stomping of their steps would not be a problem for any neighbours. Well, (laughs) so they're they're very, very um, socially nice people. (laughs) Um, About nine o'clock with the other band members yet to arrive... These two guys, they describe... Oh, flippin' heck, I did give them their surnames. 
Calavat and Bouchard would experience one of the strangest nights of their lives. As they turned their vehicle onto the small road that led to the house, they witnessed what first appeared to be a strange, and I'm using their words now, reddish light overhead and in front of the vehicle. So they watch this strange glow for a moment or two and then stop the car. When the car is stationary, they just start watching it out of out of their windows and they say that it was clear to both of them that the glowing light wasn't the result of an aeroplane or a helicopter and it becomes so close. Each of them now describes the object was more or less a round shape emitting a dark red light. Now, what you get from the descriptions is kind of interesting. So, although they differed very, very slightly, they are obviously talking about the same thing. So, Bouchard, he describes the object as being like a platter superimposed upon another, while Caliphat would state that it was like a plate seen from underneath. But it's clear they're talking about the same thing. So it's kind of like I think probably what the author of the piece in Flying Saucer Review is talking about is uh, because he makes a big deal out of this, but comes to the conclusion they are talking about the same thing. It's almost like a syntactical difference rather than um, a big difference between they sort of like might be reading too much into it, but it seems that they're seeing the same thing kind of sounds saucer like <laughs> yes it's definitely saucer like i think what they differ on is what's happening above the bottom of it and of course if you've right. got two people on two different sides of the car it's perfectly possible that one sees more of a three-dimensional picture of the yep. vehicle than the other and person one is does. underneath yeah well it, it could also um it could also help you come to the conclusion of how close they were as well because that's right you know what i mean seeing different views well they they both agree that the craft is between 30 to 50 feet across right and they both firmly agree that the glow was visible on the underside of the craft only so there's nothing coming off the top it's just it's just this sort of so that they're very clear that it isn't a single light it's um it's it's a glow that just comes from the body of the craft underneath and and being so wide it's quite bright yeah <clears throat> bouchard who is in the passenger seat he says turn off the the headlights because he wants to get a better look and Calafat, in his uh he's never driven this car it's a hire car he accidentally turns the lights to full beam and then dips them before t- finally turning them off and they then both agree that that is possibly the cause for what happens next. Because immediately following this slight debacle with the lights, the object rose straight up into the air before completing what appeared to be a Z-shaped movement overhead. And then it does this th- twice more, so it repeats this movement three times. Well, and that's, you know, I guess depends on your definition of a Z-shaped movement, but that... that that involves a certain degree of, you know, movement. I, I don't know. It's a bit the, the those kind of fast moving bits you get associated with the Nimitz and the TikTok. You know what I mean? There's lots of descriptions of it of UFOs that just suddenly move in one direction mm. to do to do a kind of Z shaped. I don't know. I'm picturing my mind. That's that's quite amazing. Yeah, 
And I can't think of another craft that uh, a, a normal craft that could do that. I guess it depends how quickly the Z was created. Well, no, but 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 you know, within a few seconds, if if it was um, you know an aeroplane, that would take you know be very difficult to do a Z shape in the way they're describing it. So they're talking about it being a um, if you like a vertical Z shape. So it's rising higher as it performs the shape. Whereas right. if you were to do that in an air show, for example, with a jet, you do it um, horizontally. And the the difficult turny bits at each corner of the Z, they would not be sharp. You'd have to, you, you know, to yeah, make yeah. you'd have to sort of like turn your your coloured smoke on and off to get a sharp thing a there sharp because movement. you could, yeah, exactly. But this craft does. It I, I, I guess times. you could do that with a with a drone. But a, you don't get drones that big, and b, it was the seventies. <laughs> so, well, it's nineteen seventy one. Yeah, so that doesn't In rural work. France. No. Yeah, yeah. So they watch these movements for several movements and then kind of realise that they need to complete their journey. So they put the car into gear and arrive at the unoccupied house. When they get to the property, the glowing red object is still perfectly visible. So they've gone down this road, stopped at the house, they turn around, they can still see it. What they also then notice, and this is where they have an element of concern, the craft is now lower to the ground and it's a little more than 150 feet from their location. So this is, I mean, that is close. 150 really? feet is, is yeah. you, you know, that is closer than you even imagine. Um, that is sort of, you know, maybe two lorry, three lorry lengths away from you. Yeah, yeah. And... As a, un, they just describe themselves as being unnerved at this closer proximity and each sort of become much more worried and they just stand there staring at this bizarre craft and they try to take in as much detail. So again, if it was present day, we might criticise them for not taking a photograph with their iPhone or whatever. But two under 25-year-olds on their way to a practice in rural France are unlikely to have a camera on them or at least something that they could quickly whip out in, you know, March 1971. But some of the details that they both completely agree on from this um, observation part of the craft or sorry, this, this part of time when they're observing the craft, they both say the outlines were very sharp on the exterior. So it's not like it's got... Um, sort of smooth curved edges it's uh although it is circular so that's obviously curved there are features on the craft that are very sharply defined and have acute angles on them and they go on to say that the color was a dark red and they compare it to the cellulose cellulose mastic used as a primer before the bodywork of cars are painted now i think that's um that, that's an old-timey reference but also a very very specific one so I remember this. Anybody of our age might remember this. If you if you had a um, a car in the seventies or eighties, and there was rust to be treated, and you you'd you'd scrape it down to bare metal, and then you'd use this um, this uh, this paint which was you know universally sold as a primer because it it filled in all the cracks. The reason for its red colour 
I think, is the sort of oxide that is used in there because it's meant to right. um, prevent rust coming through. But it's, it is a um, it is a very distinct maroony, darkish it's al- colour. It's almost a, a pastel colour. Yeah, that's it? it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a dark <coughs> pastel colour. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you mean. And another detail that stood out... Sorry, on that colour, are they saying the whole ship was that colour or that was the illusion created by the red light or the red glow? Uh, well, they just they don't actually define, go but they do much. go on yeah. to say that another detail that stood out was the darker appearance of the craft's underside than the top, right. which is, I guess, that must be a weird thing because if the bottom is glowing... You would but, think it'd be lighter. Yes, but I kind of see what they're saying. It's almost like it's got um, you know, a shinier top, and what is emanating the red light is 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 a darker material. So I can understand what they're saying. It does seem like yeah, a contradiction, yeah. but I kind of where yeah, they're coming yeah. from. Yeah, I got you. Next to happen was that a strange yellowish light emanated from the craft, and Boshard even described the light as rippling. And what's more, there appeared to be three other lights on the upper part of the craft, which appeared to suggest a rotary movement of at least the upper section of the object. The craft remained in this position for about two minutes, then it would roll slightly before vanishing into the sky, and this is a quote, like a flash. All throughout the incident, not a single sound was heard by the two witnesses. The complete encounter took place in absolute silence. Now, including including from the craft, they're saying there was no sound coming from the craft either. Oh yeah, I, I suspect like there was noise between them. You know, not least from the car engine and stuff. But yeah, but not from the craft. Not from the craft. No, no. Right. And that that description of it um, banking slightly and completely disappearing. It, that made me think of when you watch those interviews with Bob Lazar where he talks about how he believes that, you know, alien craft that he's been looking at work. Yeah. He's talking about how they um, they they sort of point to where they want to go and create uh, a, a gravitational anomaly that they fall into. Mm. So... And also, if I'm, I could be wrong about this. It could be from something else I've seen. Didn't Bob Lazar talk about almost the the gravity field being underneath the craft and creating a distortion? Or am I making that up? No, you're not making that up. It, Which could explain the difference in light and the pulsing and all that kind of stuff as well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, you know, it doesn't come up in this case, but Bob Lazar also says when you're standing underneath those craft when they were test flying, all you could see was stars through them because they're bending light and time around them, which is, which is, you know, kind of interesting. Um, but then the, the account goes on further and you sort of, you know, again, it's one of those things where you wonder what, what happens. So Boucher is completely unaffected by the incident. He, um, he, he claims to have seen a similar object years before and isn't really scared by it but Calafat he has a lot of difficulties so he claims that all the way through the encounter he felt that he was um, filled with an oppressive 
feeling and even reported feeling like he couldn't breathe properly. Even after the object was gone, he still had the, and this is according to his bandmates, the appearance of someone who was extremely unwell. Even stranger is the wristwatch he was wearing. Following the incident, it began to keep time erratically and would increasingly often just stop. Now, the next thing I'm going to tell you is, I this is one of the things where I'm like, really, because his watch was examined and it was described as being strongly magnetised. Now, that is something that we have found all the way through UFO, UFO encounters. But to me, I don't find that a very compelling piece of evidence because did he check it beforehand? Maybe it was magnetic before you know there are some watches that use um, a form of magnetism and you know hand movement to create electricity to drive the movement so it's possible i i don't think that's a standout thing yeah i i was i was also thinking about you know obviously as well within if you're performing in front of huge speakers and stuff like that equipment audio equipment can affect magnetic fields and stuff so yeah it could have been a a natural bright byproduct of his uh, profession as well maybe. Uh, of course it could of course it could and it might just be that you know what he's describing there the shortness of breath and feeling incredibly unwell you know that could be a panic attack it could be yeah 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 it could be a psychological thing from the yeah. stress of it as well yeah. and in in 1971 people didn't talk about panic attacks so yeah, it, yeah. it could it could could well have been that yeah but, general anxiety because you know yeah whatever whatever they encountered uh, you know it seemed like an anxiety inducing incident right yeah very much so he then goes on to tell investigators about the encounter that he had five years before it was in july 1966 and it happens in a village just a really short distance away from this 1971 incident and and he says well it was a sunday and a low although the late hour technically made it a monday morning he was still out at a party that um was happening on the sunday so that's why he talks about it as a sunday and all of these people he's with, there are six of them, so seven in total with him. They're preparing to leave this gathering and go home. And they split into two groups and get into two different cars. The first car goes on ahead, but the second car lags behind a bit. This caused the first car to turn around to locate their friends in case there'd been an accident. When they found them a short time later down the road, the people in that second car would inform them of a bizarre incident that they had just witnessed. After negotiating the winding roads, one of the passengers had suddenly cried out, look, there's a flying saucer. Although the driver and the other passenger assumed he was joking, at his insistence they would stop the car to investigate further. When they did, all three of the young men could see two great lights emitting a diffused glow And what's more, they were seemingly moving parallel to their location. The men jumped back inside their vehicle and drove off. As they continued down the road, they would follow the glowing lights as it negotiated its way around the treetops. For a moment, the lights would vanish. However, when they reappeared, 
all three young men had a clear view of not only the lights, but the object itself. The driver of the vehicle pulled to the side of the road once more. He then switched off the lights and stopped the engine. Then, as quietly as they could, the witnesses would leave the car and make their way to a small wall on the roadside. From there, they could see the bizarre object. It was now descending slightly, as well as nearing their location. It would eventually stop and hover about 150 feet from them and approximately 100 feet from the ground. Suddenly, a burst of light beams appeared on the underside of the craft towards the ground. This display would last for several seconds before the light suddenly went out. Then the craft vanished with a brilliant display of speed. All of them would note to each other, following the craft's disappearance, how it had not made a single sound. In fact, all around them was completely silent. So there's this... um this kind of Oz effect that you get sometimes there's no there's no sound of wildlife mm. it seems like the noises of people moving are deadened it's it's a different it, atmosphere it, the, which is uh, similar to the incident at Devil's Den isn't it they, I yes think the, the, the guys involved in that um, Terry Lovelace he talks about that that I think that's when they kind of knew something was up wasn't it like the bird sound and crickets and everything just stopped yeah that's right. Yeah. Well, what breaks the spell is the lights of the first car coming back up the road. Although those in the vehicle had not witnessed anything as close as the three in the second car, they had witnessed something that appeared like a glowing camembert cheese box. Of course, it's a camembert cheese box. Yeah. Mo- moving overhead in complete <laughs> I, silence. I, I, sorry, I went very Homer Simpson there. I just went, mm, camembert. What's perhaps also interesting is that the entire area has fault lines all around it. And the author of the article goes on to explain that perhaps these fault lines um, might have something to do with this mysterious energy. Now, Can you explain fault lines to me? uh, Yeah, so... What does that mean? So fault lines, uh, and in Britain we call them ley lines are supposed to be places around the planet where there is, um, you know, you would call them energy lines, and they are supposed to um, line up around specific, I I don't know any better way of saying it, specific energy points on the Earth's surface. Um, And people say that they get special powers out of them. There is intriguing reports of you know uh, strange phenomena around them like ley lines is a thing that used to be talked about quite a lot in the 70s in in the 70s people would sort of go out dowsing and they they claim they could find ley lines or fault lines and stone circles have got an association with them as well they they do they do as do um, you know, there are rivers, ancient monuments, that sort of thing that yep. they, they line up. I'm, I've never, ever been sort of particularly interested in ley lines and this notion of this world grid and the energies because it all seems very sort of like Age of Aquarius type of thing. I'm not saying yeah, that they and, don't and also exist. also something but... you would think that would be in some levels some way you could scientifically investigate that you'd think wouldn't you yeah otherwise how do you know what they are do you know what i mean it's just a perception you know like you just said there i don't think you can say oh the area is 
is famous for having what you what, not not um, ley lines. What did you call them? Fault lines. Fault lines. Because yeah, what does that mean? Yeah. No, I know. I mean, I do know. Yeah, this is why I sort of associate it with the seventies or eighties. There's um, a family friend, and they bought a house, apparently unknowing that it was, you know, right in the middle of a ley line, and they claimed that they couldn't sleep and it disturbed them, and there was weird stuff going on around the house. They never claimed paranormal. They put it down to this ley line, and so they moved, and then everything was fine. Right. But the, the reason I mentioned the ley line, and I think the author kind of almost talks himself out of this being necessarily an important part of the story, but it's interesting to note. But the more intriguing thing that he uncovers, um, because, you know, this is all in a very specific small area of Mm. southern France, he says that there are local legends in the area that in ancient times a great dragon haunted the town and apparently in that local legend this animal breathes fire and it comes at night and you know you mustn't be in the same place as this flying object breathing fire right. and that is that is something that is um uh is not only spoken about but there are there's local artwork which depicts this it was very much a thing of the time and of course because it's just put down to you know local folklore nobody pays too much attention to it but he does bring that out as being a really interesting fact about that area yep and um he then goes on to talk about you know he tries to match this legend of um the uh this dragon through to you know ancient civilizations and how ancient civilizations you know use this this power grid and stuff and it was at that point i was like yeah no i think i think i think i'll leave the story there but i did it's um that is a rabbit hole isn't it to go down it's such a rabbit hole it's such a rabbit hole because did the did the did the article um talk about because i'm just thinking again from a statistics point of view unless you go into a theory that the guy from tangerine uh was has, was being targeted you know and visited which is why he's seen it twice I, I did the article go into any detail of other sightings in the area from other people oh yeah yeah modern ones right okay. yeah yeah i i mean i i didn't include it here because it was kind of much more the same but there's a guy called um christian faber uh in march 1968 he witnesses uh what he describes as an orange glow and it's in exactly the same it's in one of these little villages around the same area right. and it's very much as described as the other people it goes this this circular object um then uh, well he actually goes on to describe how at some points it's a circular object and then changes to a distinct cigar shape but i think that you know that could be um just the way he's uh, perceiving it in terms of yep. the line of sight or whatever yeah but it glows red it glows orange it has white lights it appears to change shape getting slightly larger or thicker but um as it comes nearer he then describes very much what that original account says he then says well it changes and it's a soup plate upside down shape 
and its rim is cambered on the underside. And so it becomes very, very similar to what the guys from Tangerine see. Uh, wow. He says it then comes to stop over the town's clock tower, um, spin around several seconds, change back to bright orange, and then just completely disappear. Again, <laughs> I just got the vision of the, the people flying the craft going to the clock tower. Going, oh, Jesus, that's the time. We better get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> I told you your watch was wrong. <laughs> well, the other thing about it is that it... Uh, it tips up slightly. He does describe it as tipping up slightly before it disappears. Uh, I think that's a, an intriguing, similar detail to it. Yeah. Um, you know, that it might be pointing its gravitational drives to, you know, wherever it's coming from. But, you know, it's the the, the idea from that, that second account where there's this display of lights down onto the ground. There are other reports of people who have seen these craft sort of play lights across the ground yeah as if they they describe it as if it's scanning for something and then that, that, they that fly definitely off. came out didn't it and i know we reference it all the time but close encounters to the third kind there's yeah, that yeah. scene with richard dreyfus in the truck and it goes over or the pickup and it goes over his head isn't it and it goes off down the road just kind of scanning Scanning the road as it goes. It's an amazing yes. scene. But yeah, that's the image that I got when you talked about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And I, I it's though because those those accounts take place in France, like I said, we don't often get any details about them because not many people can be bothered to translate them into mm-hmm. English. And there's not that many people interested in prog rock accounts from uh the 1970s oh i don't know (laughs) so i i mean it's an amazing amazing account and interesting that uh, one of the guys had had a similar experience in a similar location a few years earlier Mm -hmm. i i guess a skeptic would probably ask the question 1970s prog rock prog rock stroke dance influenced bands could there have been some drugs involved now i'm not saying there were i'm just saying i'm sure a cynic might go down that route yes yes i think you possibly could say that i i suppose the thing about it is that two people agreed on what they saw one of them was driving so he couldn't have been that off his head you wouldn't have thought no i mean you'd need something that was hallucinogenic rather than just getting you high i mean i suppose if you went down that route you might interrogate more the fact that they describe just before it disappears that there's a rotational aspect to the top of the craft and i guess somebody arguing against the fact that they'd seen something otherworldly might say well, could it have just been a helicopter and they were both, you know, for example, on acid and what they're seeing is rotor blades. But I do think that that is, I think that's too far the other way. I don't think that people would, if they were having a trip, they would agree that you know so closely what they saw yeah and and also, I, well i want to be clear we're, we're not accusing tangerine no, no. of engaging in in drug activity i'm just kind of pointing out oh, of course i would imagine a skeptic might say well come on there are there are a rock 
prog rock stroke dance band from the 70s. Yeah. Of course. Um, but the yeah. the other thing to to note is that he's he, he's in control of a car that he hasn't driven before and is is able to negotiate his way into the dark countryside without any other issues. And don't forget Although we can't turn the lights off. <laughs> no, no, but like we've all been we've all been we've down all been, that road when you get yeah, a car you've never sat in. Putting before. the windscreen wipers on rather than the lights a- Absolutely. That, yeah. yeah. And and the other thing about it is that they are they have spent, you know, a decent amount of money to rent a house specifically for the you know, the point of rehearsing. And it seems unlikely, although of course not impossible, that you would squander the opportunity to put in some serious work because they, you know, they've got a record deal. They're trying to yeah. make something out of this. Yeah. And if two of their band members turn up and they're not in the space where they can, you know, do that work, they're not. It's not going to go down very well. Yeah. the The other question I had was, did they turn this incident? into a double vinyl concept album. <laughs> they so should have done, shouldn't they? With... with, with o- orange vinyl. Uh, with, yeah, a saucer-shaped orange vinyl picture disc. Oh, well, they didn't, but they should have done. Well, uh, uh, that gives it a bit of legitimacy to me, because then if you did turn it... you Because that's the other thing you start thinking, isn't it? Oh, is it a publicity stunt? Is it a way of kind of, you know, getting a bit of a vibe and interest in the band's new album? If, do you know what I mean? If the album that they ended up recording in that location was called, you know, the French equivalent of Saucer Life and it was all, you know, prog rocky 70-minute, you know, thing about their encounter with UFOs and stuff, then you'd kind of go, yeah, well, maybe it was a bit of a stunt, but sounds like they didn't do that. No, they, they they didn't do that. And really there was very little publicity around it. It feels like they didn't want to make a big deal out of it. This is, right. as I say, this is largely the, the biggest thing that they ever did uh, in terms of talking about the incident, talking about it to this uh, interviewer from Flying Saucer Review, that... I did, so there are still a couple of websites, well, there's at least one up, and then there's another one, which I think is about them. There's some of these websites, uh, so I'm talking about websites built around Tangerine. They're sort yeah. of built in, you know, like early 2000s, almost like GeoCities technology. So um, uh, when I run a Google Translate over them, it's incredibly difficult to get a view of what they're talking about, but they're very they're very focused on the music and there's a lot of talk about different tracks and history of some performances trying to do like a, a Google search over there for, you know, French equivalents of UFO and things like that uncover absolutely nothing. There's nothing in the news sections. There's nothing about this encounter as far as I can tell. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Well, which makes me feel sad for them in a way, because they probably realized that like, Oh God, we're in a band. <laughs> Everybody's just going to think, you know, I, I, you may get on to some other ones, but I always remember that with uh, Sean Ryder from the Happy Mondays, his, his encounter with the UFO. Yes. <laughs> most, there's people go, well, come on, it's Sean Ryder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, the Sean Ryder thing, I just, I feel really sorry for him because he claims he saw 
um, when he, I think he was a teenager, he was at a Salford bus stop and saw a UFO in the sky. He's adamant he saw it, and that's kind of sparked his interest of UFOs ever since. But when you see him interviewed on mainstream media, you know, it's, oh, it's Sean Ryder from the Happy Mondays, famous for his his excesses and, and drug taking. Huh, you saw a UFO in a Salford bus stop when you were 15. And he's always like, you can see it on his face, like, oh, should I really talk about it? Because, you know, mm. everybody's, it just makes me a laughing stock, which is a real shame, I think, because it, it genuinely sparked his interest in the topic that he carries on to this day. Yeah, yeah. And I think when you, it's it's that thing of when people look at the the background of somebody, I think it's a very, that is a very lazy way of talking about it but you know i i think that also applies to people who try to sort of not debunk but try to argue against airline pilots who say you know oh i definitely saw something out of the ordinary and then they sort of go well you know you're not an expert observer and you kind of go well yeah you are and then they go no no you're an expert flyer but you're not an expert observer and i just my shoulders just sort of go down and go well you know you can you can convict somebody in a court of law by saying, oh, it was definitely him or I saw with a gun in the yeah, post yeah. office. But you can't accept, you know, a, a, a musician who liked to have a good time or a Virgin Airways pilot who definitely saw something flying past, according to him. Or, or, and, or, a, or a policeman like Lodi Zamora who kind of gets that's right, you know, ridiculed. Yes. You know, he is a trained observer. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And quite often, like when when you listen to interviews with these people, it's ruined their life because some suddenly you, they've seen something, then they go and tell other people, and then they hit uh, a depression when people start sort of going, "Yeah, but did you really?" And then other parts of their life fall apart, and you. It's a common story. Like I was listening to, um, I can't remember his name now, but I was listening to uh, a Welsh policeman who definitely, you know, he had a very similar story about he saw something very similar to the Lonnie Zamora story. And he had a lot of uh, pushback afterwards. And he became an alcoholic. He split up with his wife and it took him years to put his wife back, his, his, I'm sorry, his life back on track. Yeah. And, you know, nobody would do that to themselves if yeah. they weren't confident in what they saw. So, yeah. so we 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 obviously know Sean Ryder has had that encounter, and if I mean he's in, he's done um, that program for, I think it was History Channel Channel Five, which is really rather good actually. Um, yeah. and we know Tom DeLong, so he had an encounter before he used his. Blink 182 money to form all of the organizations that he's done to look into the phenomena. So the Stars Academy is the the word I was groping for. Yep. But here, here's a few I had never heard of, and I'll I'll just give you a soup song because there are many. But did you know Elvis Presley saw UFO? Oh no, I didn't know that. No, I didn't either. And it comes from an interview with his makeup artist of all places. Wow. And and it is a third-hand account, but I thought it was interesting. It appears in a, uh, a a pop music magazine from the sixties. It's not. It's this is not from a UFO thing. Yeah. And um, he says, "Oh, his father told us he'd gone out to have a cigarette at two a.m. on the uh, during the delivery, 
so they're talking about delivery of um, uh, stage material for Elvis. Right, right. When he looked up into the skies and he saw the strangest blue light, he knew right then and there that something special was happening. So that is like his father's account of Elvis's um, brief brief view of something that he thought was a, a, a UFO, which I thought was what? really good because I'd never heard it. Was he all um, shook up? <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. Yeah. Um, so John Lennon, I sort of had a feeling that he might have done, but I had no idea that he'd gone on to TV to talk about it. Oh, I know. I, I, yeah, I, similar to you. I, I, it almost feels like, is that just something I kind of made up in my mind? But, oh, he has talked about it. Yeah. Well, well, not only did he talk about it on television, but... He wrote about it in the liner notes in the 1974 album Walls and Bridges. And the what he writes in that album notes is, on the 23rd of August, 1974, at nine o'clock, I saw a UFO. He then goes on to explain in the TV interview that he was peering out of his New York window and he saw, and these are his words, a thing with ordinary electric light bulbs flashing on and off around the bottom, one non-blinking, one red on top. He said it was as close as 100 feet away and above the top of the next-door building. His girlfriend, May Pang, went on record saying, as I walked out onto the terrace, my eye caught this large circular object coming towards us. So um, that's uh, that's something I didn't know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Okay. You might you you might be unsurprised though that Jimi Hendrix did. Right. Okay. This is where it's getting less credible. <laughs> <laughs> the man well, who used to take about eight tabs of acid and tie it on his headband before he went on stage. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> well, I didn't know he was obsessed with science fiction. And no, I didn't know that either. Um, apparently, his absolute favourite was Flash Gordon. But he and his brother. Leon both witnessed the same UFO of UFO out of their backyard window. Um, so apparently, all he did was um, he 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 saw this object. He told his parents. They didn't take any deep description, but during his life, when he became famous, and they started interviewing people from his past, like his teachers, there's one specific teacher said how annoying he was that he he doodled UFOs in all his school books and he insisted to the teacher that these weren't things on telly these are things that he'd seen so i thought that was um right so so that that would have been pre i would imagine any drug taking on his part cuz he you would think so to, he would then went on to join the military and so yeah interesting but yeah, my, i didn't know that about hendrix that's amazing no i didn't i didn't um but yeah, but I, I, I've, I, I don't know about you, but as soon as I heard he was really into Flash Gordon, I did wonder whether he'd ever done that. Gordon's alive, and just sort of because <laughs> well, I would have. Oh, it also makes you kind of go, God, can you imagine if he'd have survived and done the soundtrack for the movie? <laughs> that would have been amazing. <laughs> Nothing against Queen. Nothing against Queen, but Jesus, can you imagine Jimi Hendrix doing the soundtrack to a to a Flash Gordon movie? That'd be superb. Oh, it would have been better. Well, it would be better if he'd done the soundtrack, but also 
if he'd had a little walk-on part rather than um, it being Peter Duncan, <laughs> Peter Duncan's character played by oh, Jimi Hendrix. About, yeah, I forgot about Peter Duncan. Yeah. <laughs> oh. That was a weird thing, wasn't it? I'm sorry, I've just got, I'm just trying to picture Hendrix in the movie now. I've got to stop because that'll I'll, I'll go off down a tangent, <laughs> a tangerine tangent. <laughs> well, the last one I want to tell you about is, uh, and I don't suppose this comes as much of a surprise, but he does have the most far out story about it. Sun Ra, right? So he talks about, and this is from him being on. This is from an, a radio interview. And he claims that he had been visited by some some beings. And he his direct quote is, he said, I was told that they wanted me to go somewhere, that I had the type of mind that could do something to help the planet. I was going out, but it was a very dangerous journey. I had to have a procedure and a discipline. I had to go up there like that in order to prevent any part of my body from touching the outside because I was going through time zones. And if any part of my body touched the outside, I, could get, I couldn't get it back. I went up at terrific speed to another dimension, another planet. <laughs> he then goes on to say Sun Ra was offered to be the spearhead of a movement to guide the planet and governments in a certain spiritual direction. And now, says, now I'm with you, Ben, on let's not write off pop and rock stars just, <laughs> just because of their reputations that they couldn't have genuinely seen a UFO. <laughs> Sun Ra is slightly stretching it for me. <laughs> well, well, there's a new book to that story is, so he's told all this stuff and he said, I turned around and said to them, I'm not interested. <laughs> <laughs> that is brilliant. <laughs> what are you talking about we've come halfway across the galaxy <laughs> <laughs> we've been talking you to mean you you're not interested well screw you we're gonna go see john lennon yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh years later the same guys are like robbie williams we'll give it a try i suppose yeah <laughs> <laughs> some great names in there though ben I know, I know, and like I'm sure, I'm sure the same would apply if we spoke about ghosts or something. But I just, I like that notion of um, pop stars being contacted by alien beings. I'm sure that's the plot to like a Kiss movie or something somewhere. Yeah, it's got to be, hasn't it? If it, if I it's not, so. it should be. Yeah, but. That is all I have for this week. So if you're making music and uh, you look out the window and you see a strange light, you fall into that category of musicians being visited by aliens. Um, let, let us know. I'd love to hear. Yeah. And Ben, in, in, in the immortal words of Elvis Presley, thank you very much. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> No, that's great. Um, and uh, once again, thank you for stepping in and uh, putting that together because that's amazing, amazing. Who, who who would have thought we'd gone from Tangerine, John Lennon, Jimi Hendrix, Sean Ryder, Blink-182 182, 182, and ended up with Sun Ra. Perfect. 
Do you know? I must. I must look at. I. I did. Ha- I did try and see if I could see if those guys from um, Tangerine were still alive, but um, it's very hard to find out. Yeah. yeah. I'll see if th- I'll. I'll keep my investigations. Maybe we can get them on, and I'll find a French translator, and we can. Well, we can it, hear what about it, what it, it does again. make me think. You know, rock stars aside because you're right it's like a lot of these incidents and things are probably not translated because unless you're dedicated um like the ufo review or the 14 times or something you're not gonna go through the the i was gonna say rigmarole but that's the wrong word the let's say rigmarole of translating it right because it's just like oh well let's write about something else but it does make you wonder what other little niches of these stories are not out there because nobody's actually that we know about because they've not been translated into English language? That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, completely. Uh, and I think that's probably why there's this sort of public perception that UFOs only happen in mm. America. Yeah, uh, and yeah. and possibly the UK yeah. is because of that language barrier, and it's expensive to get something properly translated. Like I, there yeah. are lots of books about it that are translated from French and stuff, but you've got publishers behind it, and they usually, you know, they're usually picked up by a niche audience, like you know, you and I. It's not like you know, my mum would go out and buy a book about French UFO abductees, yeah. and it's well, difficult I, to make the papers with them as well. I think. Yeah, well, I, I, it's funny because I was I, I was thinking about it earlier today because I was doing something and it it involved looking at a lot of kind of important theoretical academic papers and these papers are like considered some of the most important in the fir- in the field and but because they were originally in German, in some cases it took forty years for them to be translated into English. Right? These are yeah, like yeah. Important theories, you know, you know, so you can understand why. Not that I'm, you know, uh, discounting it in any way, but an encounter by French band Tangerine takes a while to get translated, let alone uh, encounters that are are less dramatic. Yeah, 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 agreed, agreed. Interesting. Well, if, if anybody listening to us has, you know, if you've got a track by Tangerine, if you went and bought the record... Or you've got them on tape, or better yeah. still, four track. Yeah. Oh, just let us know. Send us a yeah. picture on our socials. Yeah, definitely. And the other thing is on that theme of UFO stories in different countries. I mean, I was looking the other day on our podcast stats. I mean, we're we're being listened to all over the world. So if anyone goes, yeah, yeah, but you know, what about this? fantastic malaysian story of ufos and you're in malaysia and you've got these stories just throw them our way or at least give us a a nod to where we could maybe go and find and search them uh, ourselves because that'd be really interesting and of course don't forget my preoccupation with werewolves if you've got a good local werewolf story yeah forget ufos anything paranormal where you think it's not been necessarily we might know about it in the uk or in the us i'd love to know about all that stuff brilliant yeah completely okay brilliant well um hope you enjoyed that i certainly did and we'll be back next week with more from the quantum mechanics thanks for listening like rate and review see you next week bye
tell you the quantum mechanics.